Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by a friend, also author, former professor, Harry Targ. You could check out his work at Diary of a Heartland Radical, which is a blog that's been around since 2009, and Harry writes on a wide variety of issues from political theory to U.S. foreign policy, social movements, and more, labor issues. Uh, and as I said, recently retired from Purdue University um, as a political science professor. And how long were you there for, Harry? Oh, 51 years. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. So you've seen a lot of generations of students come and go. Yes. Yes. I came in 67. And uh, despite what people think, there was a lot of activism uh, in uh, 67 through 71 or 72. Um, uh, black students organized and made demands that led to the creation of a wonderful black cultural center in programs in African-American studies and later on women's studies. And frankly, all of that is being threatened now by uh, cutbacks, by Purdue's uh, conscious shift more to so-called STEM fields and to diminish, you know, not rega regard with respect uh, these alternative, terribly important uh, subjects. Talk to me a little bit about those four years that you mentioned, 67 to 71. So you started teaching at Purdue in 1967. Right. There's all kinds of social movements happening in the U.S. We have the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, the anti-war movement. Vietnam is raging. Uh, I don't believe uh, Johnson had already announced that he wasn't going to run in 68, but you're, you're coming up to 1968 election. What, mm -hmm. what did that look like? I mean, you mentioned that there was activism in places like West Lafayette, Indiana. They're often right. not talked about, but what was happening in the, in the area at that time? Exactly. The Time magazine in those days characterized Purdue as a campus at rest. And I think uh, uh, that wasn't a, a, an accurate description. Of course, the activists were relatively small minority, but when we, we arrived in the fall of 67, there was a student peace union. The first meeting of the student peace union we went to, they were raising money to send people by bus to uh, the march, the anti-war march in Washington in the fall of 67. Um, subsequent to that, I think in the spring of 68, the president of the university uh, precipitously raised tuition and this generated even larger protests. So the issues got mixed. The radical students uh, sought to, to sort of radicalize the perspective of the larger number of students. But there was some rally in the spring of 68 that drew upwards of a thousand participants. Uh, there was a sit-in at the student union. Um, students were arrested, 229 students were arrested. Uh, for occupying the union when the president ordered that it be closed. So there was a lot of uh, ferment. It was a learning experience for me. I got to uh, teach a course called Contemporary Political Problems, which is totally ambiguous. And I began to read with my students the literature of the time, Malcolm X's autobiography, uh, some of the literature coming from uh, SDS and the freedom movement in the South. Uh, I was interested in anarchist writers at the time, like Paul Goodman um, and, and others. Uh, we read on a lot of educational theory as well. 
and I started teaching a course on U.S. foreign policy. And to some degree, I was learning, if you will, while I was teaching. And um, I always see a, an interconnection between social movements and the educational process and the swirl of discontent all around the country and even at Purdue uh, stimulated my rethinking and thinking along different lines than, than what I was taught in graduate school. And I think that was the case uh, everywhere. Uh, in the spring of 1969, I believe it was, 250 African-American students uh, lined up in front of Stewart Center, which was one of the Memorial uh, uh, Union annexes, and they each carried a paper bag and they marched uh, in unison down to the executive building and each student took out of uh, the bag a brick and piled the bricks up and laid a sign next to, next to the bricks called, or the fire next time. And that stimulated, you know, uh, all sorts of discussion around campus. The administrators were freaked. And uh, out of that demonstration came uh, a willingness to Purdue to create a black cultural center and also to stimulate the introduction of an, of an African-American studies program. So that action by black students in the spring of 69 uh, played a significant role in transforming uh, the university. And uh, there is a documentary film on the history of uh, African-Americans at Purdue, and I, the name escapes me. I think people could Google it. And it shows in detail that protest and what came out of that protest. And thinking, thinking of that mobilization, I always found inspiring. Now, if you fast forward for two weeks ago, and I've been, as you said, uh, as I told you, living in Milwaukee, so I'm out of touch with the campus, but African-American students uh, organized in part by the Pan-Hellenic Council have organized uh, two, uh, two protests, I think one two weeks ago and one uh, about a week ago, making demands on Purdue to address questions of um, lack of adequate uh, people of color on the faculty and the student body and incidences uh, of racism uh, in and around the campus and the community. And from what I can tell, this these mobilizations have been carried out largely by students with very little input from faculty and other elders presumed to have some wisdom. And so it's exciting to see. And, um, and uh, Purdue has responded in part by uh, creating a, uh, a lecture series online. Uh, that is quite good. I think tomorrow night, Dolores Huerta is one of the speakers. Uh, but from my point of view, having a speaker series is not adequate. And the student demands, I think, go beyond the speaker's a series to, you know, real efforts to recruit African American students and faculty, and to make the campus a much much more you know hospitable place for people of color. Well, how do you? Let me. I'm going to jump a little bit forward. We'll stay in the same vein. Yeah, we have protests. We've had an uprising of sorts for the last four months. Some. 
you know, sort of more militant than others, but spreading out. I think the New York Times had a report. There was over 2,500 protests that took place within a two-month span in the United States and in towns and cities that had never seen uh, protests before. Um, how do you sort of process this situation that we're in right now? You know, how do you process the current political situation? Donald Trump is in the White House, so we have this resurgence of sort of white nationalism, uh, this some people call it fascism, some people call it neo-fascism, whatever we want to call it, we know it's terribly bad uh, and it needs to be stopped. Um, we have, on the other hand, Joe Biden uh, running for president. This is a topic we've talked about with many guests. Of course, I think most people know my position. I encourage people to vote strategically for Democrats, particularly in this election. Um, I'm assuming you agree that Trump is a symptom and not the disease, but that it's imperative to defeat Trump. What? How do you sort of process where we're at now, the importance of defeating Donald Trump, and what, you know, what does the left look like post-election? You know, what is the challenge for the left? What is the challenge for working class movements, um, you know, post-election, regardless of, of who ends up winning? Well, uh, this is terribly complicated. I totally agree with you that Trump has to be defeated. He represents the most retrograde uh, part of U.S. political tradition, the white nationalism, the racism, um, and of course all the negatives that we could use are are appropriate. Um, At the same time, we, we would agree that Joe Biden represents neoliberalism and um, the continuation of the interests of Wall Street. But first things first, uh, Trump has to be defeated. The second thing, maybe the day after the election, uh, we have to begin to talk about what next. And I hear from various people on the left in the peace movement that they have that in mind, that uh, we need to begin to get together to develop a long-term plan uh, to challenge, if Biden is is victorious, uh, to challenge Biden both on foreign policy and domestic policy, push for Medicare for all, uh, a Green New Deal, uh, real programs of police reform, um, dramatic increase in the distribution of sustainable income for the vast majority of the population. Um, My frustration is that the left and progressive forces is and usually has been divided. Uh, When I did some political um, uh, work in Milwaukee, where I spent part of my time, I was on a panel with someone who referred to the silo effect. And I hadn't heard that metaphor before, but it really kind of makes sense to me that we have an enormous array of groups, peace and justice groups. We have uh, self-avowed left groups, socialist groups, and there still is a tendency for all of these groups to uh, see their issues and their perspective as preeminent. The, the most crude formulation we used to have an AFT local at Purdue. And in just one time, the president of our local said, declared, uh, follow me, I'm prepared to lead. And I always remember that. And again, he said it in jest. 
Um, but there, I think there is that tendency on the left and progressive forces. Now, from my point of view, and I'd be interested in your reaction from Northern Indiana, um, I, I've been very much impressed with the Moral Mondays campaign and the Poor People's campaign in that it had always been multi-issue. Uh, it emphasizes the interconnection between economic and social justice and anti-racism and anti-homophobia. Uh, it emphasizes to some degree anti-militarism and it affords a, a big tent, if you will, for socialists, Marxists, and people who are mo motivated by spirituality. As you know, we tried to form an Indiana Moral Mondays campaign uh, in uh, 2004, 2005, and uh, it faltered for a number of reasons, some, some local to uh, various parts of the state. But I'm really still intrigued with the new, new Poor People's Campaign and I really hope that we could all gravitate in the direction of a movement like that, that is broadly inclusive in terms of issues, in terms of people, uh, in terms of theory and practice. Uh, whether we could achieve that and whether the New Poor People's Campaign is the vehicle for that, I'm just not sure. But I think we have to spend much more time after November 3rd strategizing about how to get together because together we're a majority. Uh, I wrote an article over oh, the summer of 2019 uh, that just examined uh, polling data on a variety of uh, key issues, Medicare for all, green jobs agenda, uh, concern for climate change, a whole host of issues. And if you look at polling data, that it's majority support most of the progressive positions on these issues. And so the question is how to bring that majority together in an organized way. And so I think that's our biggest problem after November 3rd. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's an ongoing issue on the left. I mean, one of the questions I would have, I could give you sort of my view on how we interacted with the poor people's campaign. I do agree just right off the top. I agree that it's probably the organization project, however you want to put that campaign that I think has the best politics of the bunch for sure. Um, I think it combines everything in a way that's very coherent for people. I mean, I think the DSA is doing a decent job too. I mean, mm -hmm. I know Paul Buell and some other folks are really sort of committed to making that organization grow. And I, I've become more and more sympathetic to that cause, probably vis-a-vis uh, -vis working through the Bernie Sanders campaign, you know, and seeing how many people that brought in. And to your point, because it was such a big campaign on a federal level, it was able to talk about all of these issues at one time, which really helps. Um, one of the questions I was going to ask is, how do you think this differs from the kind of activism and organizing that you've seen, uh, say, in other, you know, 1960s, 1970s. I know there's time in between that that people were active, but I know that there were also similar challenges. And I wonder, I guess, how much we can avoid today some of the pitfalls that previous movements have maybe made or decisions, mistakes, et cetera. You know, and I don't, that's not to be said in like a mean spirited way. It's to be said like, we should talk about this that way 
younger generations of activists can avoid things that, you know, previous generations did. I mean, I feel like that's one of the big roles that uh, folks who've played a significant um, amount of time on the left doing this work. I think that's one of the things we can really provide the newer generation. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're asking difficult questions. I thought we were going to talk about foreign policy, which is much easier. Oh, that's a, <laughs> we <laughs> could we talk about there. foreign policy. We'll get there. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm trying to reflect upon uh, that. Uh, I do a lot. I, I, w- I was not affiliated with and formally with political organizations until the 1980s when we established a CISPUS chapter in in West Lafayette and I got very much involved in Central America work. Uh, before that, and I also uh, became a member of the Northwest Central Labor Council, which then was was housed in, in Lafayette. So my, con- my interests were labor and Central America and foreign policy. Um, Having having said that, you know, I became an activist in the mid to late 60s, particularly, you know, uh, a, becoming a, a teacher and, a, and a defined a radical at Purdue University. And um, only subsequently have I begun to study in a serious way uh, social movement theory and the history of social movements. And quite frankly, as I look at the history of social movements, I see uh, a prominent positive role played uh, by uh, the industrial workers of the world and the Communist Party USA in building uh, towards mass labor mobilization in the 1930s. And for all their flaws, it seems to me these organizations planted their planted the seeds of radical change uh, in in the 40s and 50s, and that's why uh, when I was a kid growing up, I was growing up in the environment of. Twenty-eight oh five. To repress those uh, those movements. And in the 1960s, when young people found that joined the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, they didn't have much sympathy or understanding of the history of their predecessors. And they were very much committed to creating something that was totally new. And in the process, there was a lot of factionalization, both in theory and practice, um, that I think I, I think led to the quietism of the 1970s and 1980s. So I think I'm, I'm not just talking as an academic, but I think we have to look back at our history to look back uh, in a clear-eyed way of the social movements of the past and frankly to appreciate the enormous contributions that the old left made to the building of the labor movement and stimulating the struggle against racism. I'm reading now Glenda Gilmore's book, Defying Dixie. And it's a narrative about, largely about uh, Northern radicals, often communists and some socialists, going South and participating in building a movement against Jim Crow. 
And it's also a story of Southern radicals, black and white, who go north, uh, connect up with radicals and return to the South to fight against Jim Crow. So we've got quite a tradition. And, um, you know, I, I don't know where this is leading me, except to say that, you know, I think we have to revisit our history. When I freed articles in Jacobin, for example, um, sometimes I feel they're, uh, they're reinventing the wheel and they're writing articles that really distort the historical experience of radicals in the early to mid part of the 20th century. So, you know, I would advise people to, to go back and read some history and connect with the old left um, as, as we build for the 21st century. What do you? What are those uh, differences, Harry? Because I think that's interesting. What What do you think are some of those? Are they fundamental differences, or are they? What What would you say is there like an ideological difference, a difference in program, or is it approach? Kind of what is the What is the difference for you? Okay, probably all of the above. One, at some point, and I know some of this relates to your writing. We need organization building, right? We We need people to commit to organization to some degree that requires some measure of discipline, not iron-handed, top-down discipline, but some measure of discipline and commitment by people to the organizations that, uh, that they're part of. We also need to revisit the history, the theory and practice of capitalism. Um, we also need to revisit and make relevant for the 21st century some of the key concepts in Marxist theory, and I'm talking about class. We need to revisit and discuss more thoroughly the interconnections between class and race. And again, I know that you have written about this subject as well. And I take a view that there's an inextricable connection between class and race. And I usually, when I give a talk, go back to Marx's, uh, Marx's eloquent and ironic description of the happy dawn of civilization when black skins are kidnapped and brought to the new world. And uh, while racism existed before capitalism, uh, the connection between capitalism, class and race become even more profound with the development of capitalist system. I think we have to make these connections between uh, class, race, and gender as well. And uh, also, and I know you've written a little bit about this, um, what is the cultural superstructure that affects the consciousness uh, of all of us? You know, I'm reflecting and thinking about uh, sitting down and, and trying to write a book on what, what some people might call the golden age of capitalism when I was growing up from the 1940s to the 1960s. And not only is a period of time when uh, capitalist economies are growing, uh, there's uh, the development of the production of a whole array of consumer goods, uh, there's the spoiling of land as, uh, as suburbs are created. And um, I remember growing up in an environment where as a middle-class kid, my dad was a small businessman, it was just assumed that I would go to college. 
and and all of this is coupled with an environment in which the prior history is uh, is erased. Uh, their history of the role of socialist movements, the history of racism as a building block in American society, no discussion of the genocide against the native peoples and so on. So it, it was a, you know, it was a period of time in which our consciousnesses were very much affected by the cultural apparatus. You know, I used to go every Saturday afternoon to watch cowboys and Indians play out in the old movies. And this dramatically affected our consciousness. Well, that golden age has uh, came to an end. I like to say the Tet Offensive was the beginning of the end of the, of the golden age. And uh, U.S. hegemony has been under assault very much ever since. But if you fast forward to the 21st century and think about the cultural apparatuses today and how they affect all of us, in terms of individualism instead of social responsibility, in terms of consumerism, in terms how we, on the one hand, are conscious of uh, environmental disaster and on the other hand, still consume. Um, there's a lot of ways in which we have to think and sort of deconstruct um, our material experiences and our intellectual and cultural experience as well. I'm going on too long, but I hope I've made some sense out of this. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I guess my question would be, and I'm getting more and more specific, and that's okay. If we don't finish everything in the hour of for today, we'll just simply set up a second or third interview. We'll, we could do as many as we want. Um, okay. So yeah, don't worry about that. We don't have to fit everything in today. I've done a couple interviews. We just did our second with Michael Albert. We just did a second one with uh, Bill Fletcher. So we'll do a second. We'll just keep going. You know, there's plenty to talk about. I guess the specific question I have, because I too, somewhat differently, I was a part of Iraq Veterans Against the War, Veterans for Peace, and so I've been a part of political organizations, but they were largely in that sort of siloed tradition. Like we were focused on the wars. We weren't dealing with all kinds of other issues, though the work eventually expanded to other places. I guess my, my question is very specific here about, so when I became aware of Jacobin, there was actually, let me back up. Uh, Jacobin had a really interesting conversation last week about, you know, the benefits and negatives to Saul Alinsky's work. And they were mostly talking about this sort of negatives to this one and one something that Micah, one of their uh, editors had said, which I found really interesting was that, you know, he was like, well, look, in the early 2000s, when I became involved during the Bush administration, most of the Marxist groups were kind of not really doing much organizing, that they existed, but that they weren't organizing. And I agreed with that. That really lined up with my experience of getting out of the Marine Corps in 2006, joining the anti-war movement, and then looking around and saying, okay, well, who's doing stuff? You know, who's actually out there organizing in the communities? And a lot of them were organizations that were influenced by Alinsky. A lot of that has changed sort of post-Occupy. You know, Occupy was sort of, I, I would argue, the spark that started a, a whole sort of new renaissance in like Marxist thought, anti-capitalist thought, um, socialism, communism, et cetera. And then of course this, we see this manifest in Bernie's campaign in 2015 and 2016. Yeah. We see it again in 2020. I guess my question would be what specific, so 
maybe I could just go down like a, maybe a, a list of issues and we can kind of see where there would be differences. Do you think it makes sense to organize within the Democratic Party or do you think, I mean, are you, are you thinking that there should be a third party that people should be working toward? Do you think we should focus on taking over the Democratic Party? All of this said with the understanding that both you and I know elections aren't going to solve everything. I mean, we know that. But to the extent that we want to, or to the degree that we want to engage in electoral activism, what do you think the path forward there is? Okay, I, I think we have to be very practical. Step one, as we've discussed, is defeating Trump. Uh, step two is to work with the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, in many places, PDA is playing that role. Step three, and this involves my identification with particular uh, people, I think the squad symbolically represent the future inside the electoral arena. There's a dynamism, uh, there's a sense articulated by AOC and the others of the interconnectedness of all the issues that to the extent that we talk about electoral politics and Congress, um, that we ought to work with those folks. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, always seek to sort of radicalize the agenda. Now, what complicates the story, and I don't know where I'm gonna go with this, but you and I live in Indiana and um, as you know from Nancy McLean's work, the Koch brothers and Alec developed a, an agenda to take control of state governments, right? And transform national policy in the direction of free market economies through straight state politics. And many of us spent our time uh, working, uh, working for uh, for presidential candidates and working for some Congress people and ignored the fact that our states um, have been stolen, if you will, uh, by uh, the ALEC forces. The state of Indiana, when, when we came to Indiana in 1967, before your time, both senators had come out against the war in Vietnam, Vance Harkey and Birch Bayh. Um, state government was divided for many, many years. In 19, as recently as 1990, Indiana was ranked 10th in terms of union density. So there was vibrant labor movement. Uh, I uh, work with some people that you might remember who were part of Indiana University Labor Studies. And labor studies was vibrant on various Indiana University campuses, in part because the, the head of the state AFL-CIO had influence in the state legislature. And that all dissipated. In um, 2004, Mitch Daniels became governor and uh, defied his promise by supporting right to work legislation uh, reversing uh, the right of state employees to participate in union activities. And we, if we look carefully at the data, and I accumulated some of this uh, data, 
there has been growing inequality. There's a United Way study called ALICE, uh, where they hired uh, researchers from Rutgers to study the political economy of states. And there's one on Indiana that estimates that 34% of Indiana households live below a livable wage. So there's been um, a radical transformation within our state to the disadvantage of the 99%, if you will. So that complicates the story. And maybe it means, as I think about this, as we're talking, that means that we have to work uh, at the local level as well, that we have to work at the state level uh, while we support progressive candidates and national political life, people like the squad. Mm-hmm. So, What do you think about where labor is right now, the role that labor could play? I mean, I think a lot of us who support organized labor who have a vision for what we would like to see organized labor be, which of course in my thinking would be to encompass anyone and everyone who makes a wage for a living. Um, and it would cross international boundaries. Um, we would like to see more from that labor movement. I think in this context, uh, some labor movements, some locals have stepped up, but I think we could see, we could have seen a lot more during the Trump years. And I think, you know, where I live, pretty sure this won't surprise you, but we have a significant portion, likely half of the voters for the USW who live up here are voting for Trump. Uh, mm-hmm. So some of this, of course, who, however the left moves forward, there, there has to be some kind of an industrial policy. There has to be a policy around what we want to do with manufacturing or what that looks like or how we're going to deal with these places. As we know, throughout the Rust Belt that gave Trump the election in 2016. I mean, one of the reasons why we think it's so important to organize in places like this is that if you don't, uh, you know, I think you could let some really reactionary right-wing elements fester and grow, uh, or you just deal with a situation like we had in 2016. But in this context, it seems like, you know, both sides are sort of digging in and becoming more ideal. Like, especially, you know, you could see with the Trump supporters that there's not much movement, that they just support Trump. That's the way it's going to be. Um, in that context, I could see labor playing a, a really positive role uh, in sort of corralling some of those people around class issues, you know, so they're not arguing with each other about these other things. Not to say that they wouldn't have to deal with, you know, race and gender and all of these other things, but that maybe the first step in the door is to get folks to to focus on what they have in common and what you know what some of their common interests are but what what do you kind of see the role of labor being in this context or what would you like to see labor do moving forward yeah yeah um let's see there are several ways to think uh think about this one i think class struggle is basic to change i think marx was right Uh, Secondly, the working class, um, as he said, was vital to bringing about fundamental change. Third, the working class has been responsible for much of the progressive change in U.S. history. I'm thinking particularly the 1930s and the New Deal and great society programs. Fourth, And here's where I think theory, uh, history and theory are terribly relevant. The class, uh, the working class today 
is radically different from the working class one Marx wrote, right? Um, he was writing, working, uh, writing about uh, factory workers who gained power by working in the same place, schmoozing with each other and talking about how the system had to change. Now we've seen the alienation of work such that uh, people are isolated, atomized, working off of their computer. In addition, I think the concept of the precariat is just terribly important as well. Yeah. Uh, Guy Standing, the uh, Australian economist, I think introduced the term. But basically, the argument here, proletariat and, um, you know, and precariousness come together in, in developing this concept. More and more people uh, who work are in, in situations of extreme insecurity. And uh, we have to think about how this 21st century precariat uh, is part of our thinking about radical change. In addition, um, people talk about the informal sector, particularly in the global south. You have one estimate I saw that in Latin America, 40% of the workforce is in the informal sector. And now in the midst of the COVID crisis, they've got to go out on the street and hu hustle their goods, uh, whether, you know, whether it might cause, you know, whether they might con contract the pandemic or not. And so 21st century, the 21st century working class is very different than a Marxist conception of class, the old industrial workers, the factory workers in Gary uh, that you know a lot about. So we have to rethink theoretically. And what does this mean practically? It means on the one hand, organizing in the non-traditional sectors, the fight for 15, uh, healthcare workers, uh, figuring out work, uh, ways to organize gig workers and um, uh, people who are, are driving cars and delivering food uh, for a living. And what does this mean for the ongoing uh, labor movement? It means that they've got to hit the streets, they've got to reconceptualize um, who the working class is and who they need to be play an active role in trying to organize. And my sense is that there are sectors of organized labor who take this kind of approach. And my sense is there's probably struggles going on within the labor movement, the way there used to be 50 years ago between craft and industrial workers, but struggles within the labor movement about organizing the precariat, the informal sector, the 21st century working class. The last thing I would say, and you got me wound up, is, uh, you know, Eric Blank's book, uh, what is it called? Red State Revolt. Red State Rebellion or Red State Revolt? Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a detailed analysis of organizing, of public school teachers organizing in West Virginia, Oklahoma, and Arizona. And it's a fascinating book from a, from a number of standpoints. One, the first thing the teachers realize is they're workers. And those West Virginia teachers say, hey, we've got a rich labor history and we're part of it, like the coal miners in the first part of the 20th century. 
Secondly, it's a great book because it describes the successes and failures of mobilizing uh, uh, teachers as workers in each of these uh, three states. I think West Virginia was the most successful, Oklahoma and Arizona less so. But you see, in each case, the teachers mobilized, developed this consciousness that in fact they're part of the working class. Okay, that's really great. In addition, you get from this um, the fact that these teachers organize in part online. They make good use of, I don't know, of a Zoom and Facebook and so on, and they get teachers to come together and meet with each other online. So they're adapting to 21st century technology. The last thing I would say about this is I was at um, uh, Ed for Red rally in Indianapolis in November 2019, and it was positively inspiring for me. I think there were about 15,000 teachers from all around the state. Since so many teachers were coming, school districts closed many of the schools. I saw representatives of the state AFL-CIO in attendance. The teachers were really angry and militant. They entered the state house. Uh, they met with their legislators. Now, it didn't lead to much, granted, but this was a start. And it suggests to me that there's this real potential of this new working class, which is most of us, more or less, uh, to begin to think as workers. So we start thinking as workers, we begin to think in more solidaristic ways. And the old slogan, like an injury one to one and it's an injury to all, becomes more prevalent. And frankly, I think this kind of solidaristic thinking should supersede um, uh, identities, uh, that we should emphasize what we have in common more than uh, what divides us. Be sensitive to what divides us and why we're divided, but recognize that we're all in this together. Now, this is a tall order, but the organized labor movement could play a role in this. Uh, now, whether it will or not, I don't know. And in the case of the CIO, which was uh, what was so enormously important, it began with John L. Lewis punching uh, the head of the AFL in the nose and storming out and starting something new. And so if labor, the new labor movement's gotta be something new, you know, it should still be a labor movement and it'll drag the old timers along kicking and screaming. Do you think that folks who are focusing maybe all of their energy on building within the existing labor movement could be putting their eggs maybe in one basket and that, that would be a, maybe a warning not to do that? Yeah, I, I'm a little detached now from the labor movement, but I, I gather isn't there uh, going to be contested election for the new president of AFL-CIO. And the head of the airline uh, stewardess union is one candidate, and she's yeah. very progressive, right? She's great. And uh, also there's uh, uh, healthcare workers union that's very progressive, right? So. Yeah. It may be that these struggles that we're talking about are going on as we speak. And to the extent those of us that are close to labor should be giving support to those sectors that are more, are more progressive. How about moving? Well, let's see. 
if you want, you could take the last 15 minutes of our time here and talk about how U.S. foreign policy underpins all of that. I mean, if you'd like to take the time to talk about that, or we could just, I could just continue, um, you know, we can continue down this path of like, what are people doing? What should we do? Vision for the future type of thing. Do you want us to do that and visit foreign policy during our next conversation? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. that's fine. Let's do that. The only thing I was going to mention when there was a, um, uh, an internet gift and we could let's put it off till next time but you probably are aware of the national security archives uh mm -hmm. people in dc that accumulate declassified documents and uh i got an email from their latest rendition about an hour before we began to talk and it's notes taken by uh richard helms director of the cia from a meeting that he had with Nixon on September 15th, uh, roughly 3.30 in the afternoon hmm. in 1970, where Nixon orders him to begin the task of making sure that Allende does not assume office as president of Chile. And if he does do everything in our power, including making their economy scream, uh, so that Allende gets overthrown in a coup. I just throw that in. We could talk more about that next time. Yeah. But I regarded it as a gift because it came an hour before we were going to be. <laughs> yeah. And the anniversary was not too long ago because that was what, 19, September 11th, 1973. Right. Yeah, so that. And I write, a, I write about that and I have some remarks about, you know, what is similar and significant about. Uh, September 11, 73, and September 11, 2001. Let's, so we could talk. Yeah, let's do that the next time we talk, because then we can go through a whole sort of U.S. foreign policy, U.S. empire, imperialism as it relates to capitalism. I think okay. that would be a good conversation. And just to give folks a sense of, you know, we've had a series of interviews over the last week and over the next two weeks where we're speaking with a lot of folks uh, that come from your generation who were politicized during Vietnam and during the civil rights movement. And so it's been a really uh, interesting and good for me to revisit a lot of this history, especially the history <laughs> around Vietnam, uh, what happened in the 60s. Uh, the thing I was going to ask you about was how you, you know, today... Compared to 15 years ago when I first got involved with activism, today the word socialism is being thrown around more than it's ever been thrown around since I've been involved. Yeah. Um, and it's more accepted. And people, you know, and people are talking about the difference between democratic socialism, what is eco-socialism, and now all kinds of people have different ideas. What would you say to people who are just coming to this work? And as you know, Harry, there's so much misinformation out there when the BLM protests really started to kick off a few months ago, you know, I had seen stuff online, people saying, you know, the Marxists want to destroy the nuclear family and all, I mean, just yeah, really right, crazy right, right. red baiting stuff. And we saw some of this with Bernie Sanders campaign as well. So what is your, ver and I know this is a short time, but I mean, just to give folks a sense of like, what would sort of the, some of the central components be to the world that you would want to live in? And, and is it that you would call that world socialism or am I wrong to say that? No, I'm, no, you're right to say that. Uh, uh, we could talk about definitions and uh, I'm willing to, to do that. I, I, but one thing that, the first thing that comes to my mind is Cuba. And I've been to Cuba many times. I'm particularly following 
uh, <clears throat> the uh, webinars on Cuba and healthcare. And we know some women, US women, who are studying medicine in Cuba at ELAM, the Latin American School of Medicine. Uh, and uh, their education is paid for by the Cuban government. And they've given talks here back, uh, back in Milwaukee about their experience. And what comes through clearly in their presentation is a sense that the Cuban people have a sense of social responsibility, uh, have a sense that uh, their, um, uh, their development uh, and security is intimately connected to the development and security of the communities in which they're a part. There's a profound sense of responsibility. The Cuban healthcare system is radically different from our own, that um, there are doctors in neighborhoods, doctors and, and nurses who visit people on a regular basis. They're committed to a system of uh, preventative medicine, uh, you know, rather than uh, responding to illnesses after they occur. Uh, so there's planning, there's community, there's a clear connection between the people and, and their government. And frankly, uh, at the risk of sounding schmalsy, it's a little bit like the vision of Che Guevara that animated so many of us in the 1960s. So in the broadest sense, it seems to me, the kind of socialism that we want to build is a socialism that's based on community and sense of cooperation and responsibility for each and every one of us. And then this is radically different from uh, the free market model that says, uh, Margaret Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society. Right. It's all individuals. We're all in it for ourselves. And that's the polar opposite of anybody's conception of socialism. And, you know, so to me that, that that's the bottom line, you know, how it works, you know, how it plays out is, is complicated, but the Cubans are at least one example, one kind of model. Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting because for other people, socialism sometimes means a very specific political program. The way that you describe it, it seems to me that for you, at least on a deep level, that socialism means something more about sort of our human values and the kind of values and principles that we hold. Yeah. Now, they're connected to material reality, right? Mm -hmm. Who controls the means of production? Uh who makes decisions and and the input that all of us have in those decisions. Uh, but at, I hate to use the word spiritual, but at the spiritual or, or, or even cognitive level, uh, we're talking about a vision of humanity in which each of us has some responsibility, willing responsibility to all of us. And I think that's a, that's a powerful concept. And if you talk about, go back to where we started, uh, the 60s, uh, some of the stuff in the Port Huron statement, that first document of SDS is, is powerful in its language about a uh, sense of community, uh, self-actualization was tied to community, 
and other other language that that inspired me when I became an activist. Well, I think that might be a good because it's an inspiring end note, that might be a nice way to end before I ask you something that leads us down a negative path. <laughs> yeah. I think I think that's a great way to end because I think it's a very nice explanation and I think it's inspiring for people to hear that. Because one of the things I'll say, Harry, is that my only concern, not my only, one of my primary concerns with this resurgence of sort of socialist Marxist thought is that it's spoken about in such a way that sometimes I believe can turn off poor and working class people, that I think sometimes there's language used and jargon that no one else understands. And I think poor and working class people who would otherwise be inclined to join these movements or to identify with those kind of politics might be turned off by the way people talk about it. And I think the way that you just talked about it is about as good as it gets. Oh, right, right. And you know, probably I'm assuming, you know, I came, I'm a middle-class kid and have a, had a middle-class job, but I would assume that elements of solidarity and community are deeply embedded in working-class experience. And like you say, to help people uh, understand uh, that deeply embedded communitarianism uh, is terribly important. And to do so, leave out the rhetoric and talk about people's consciousness in their lives. That might have something to do with you living in West Lafayette and me living in Michigan City. I have a feeling that we might be a little more exposed to, uh, you know, a certain reality that our friends in Berkeley and uh, NYU might not be. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Have you read, um, oh, I forget her name, an anthropologist wrote a book called uh, Exit Zero, no. And it's an analysis. I'll, I'll have to send you the reference to it. It's an anthropological study of her family at the destruction of jobs in, um, in Gary Hammond. Hmm. Uh, I think her father worked at Wisconsin Steel. And she describes the disintegration of a father. Did they turn and- this into a PBS documentary, Harry? I think so. Yeah, yeah, I saw the documentary. I didn't know it was based off of a book, but I wrote it down right now. I was going to yeah. say this sounds very familiar. I saw it on PBS. Uh huh. Yeah, it's uh, it it is very good. And as I remember, this communitarian spirit that we were talking about in in her description was largely held together by the women in the community. Mm-hmm. The husbands became despondent. They lost their jobs. Uh, she describes coming back. She she gets out. She grows up in the community. I forgot. I think it was South Chicago. That's the exit zero. Yep. And she gets she gets lucky and gets out and gets a PhD in anthropology and then wants to come back to understand her family and the experience of the community in which she grew up. And her father doesn't even want to talk about it. Right. They have a hard time getting him to talk about it. But the chapters, as I remember, on the women coming together in a communitarian way is very interesting. They might be our only hope. The movie Salt of the Earth kind of shows that to some degree. And uh, Uh you would agree with uh, Kurt Cobain and my own experiences. (laughs) Someone Uh who also said that he believes women will save us. And, you know, Sergio pointed to the space it's very true. I mean, when we look at our community in which we live and we look at the projects that we've engaged with locally, it's largely been women who've held it together. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, Harry, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. 
Okay. And let's just set up another one. I'll email you probably tonight or tomorrow when I look at the calendar, and we'll set up a second part where we could talk about imperialism, U.S. foreign policy, and maybe a little more about what's happening internationally. Okay. That's terrific. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. All right. No, thank you. Yeah. Well, good talking to you. And I, I would stick around so we could just kind of BS for a little while, but I got to jump off because I got to do this talk for the, uh, the students out east. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. But I'll talk to you soon and I'll send you an email. Okay, super. Thanks, Vince. All right. Take care, Harry. Yeah. You've been watching Park Media and I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at parkmedia, Facebook at politics, art, roots, culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.